The vehicles of my childhood were a 1968 Ford Falcon and a 1973 Ford Ranchero. These vehicles had some things in common with each other, even though one was a four-passenger sedan and the other was a three-passenger uh, truck, sort of. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ranchero or not, but they are hideous with a green stripe. My dad loved it. Uh, both had gear shifts on the column, which meant if you're going to church on a Sunday morning and you're in the Ranchero and you had to sit next to dad, you had to shelter your left kidney from him because he was shifting aggressively on the column. Both of them had bench seats. The Ranchero had a bench seat. The Ford Falcon had two bench seats, one in the front, one in the rear. Uh, they had seat belts, but they were shoved down in the cracks of the bench seat. We never used them. We grew up with mom or dad doing the, you know, whoosh thing if we came to a sudden stop. And the other thing they had in common was that they were both rear-wheel drive. So it was a manual stick on the column, bench seats, no seat belts. Oh, and the headlight, the high beam, was your left toe. So when you weren't clutching, you had time to put on your high beams uh, with your foot on the button on the left side of the clutch pedal. But they were both rear-wheel drive vehicles, and our driveway had a little hill, which meant on days like today, when it snowed, common practice for us was to put either 50 or 100 pounds of chicken feed in the, either the trunk of the Ranchero, or we'd wrap it in a tarp, uh, of the Falcon, rather, in the trunk of the Falcon, or we would wrap it up in a tarp and put it in the bed of the Ranchero so that they would have traction. And the big improvement was when we had money, you know, we would put snow tires on the rear of these vehicles. Now, for people of a certain age, what I'm describing is perfectly normal. What do you mean a gear shift on the column? Like, what does that even mean? Uh, never mind rear-wheel drive. Like, you've never heard of a rear-wheel drive vehicle. And then uh, our lives changed in 1985. For $5,000, we bought our first brand-new car just down the road at the Jewett City Ford dealership, right by Green Onion Pizza. And it was a 1985 Ford Fiesta, four on the floor, front-wheel drive. My dad thought his life was changed. Like, he'd never driven anything with such great traction in the snow. Front-wheel drive was revolutionary. Um, and that ended up being the vehicle that I took to college and drove all over the place for many years. And it wasn't until I was 17 years old that we got our first four-wheel drive vehicle. And that was truly revolutionary. 1983 Nissan pickup with a roll cage with headlights on the roll cage. It was so cool. It's what made Trish fall in love with me. Uh, because <laughs> um, I needed all the help I could get. Um, and it had a lift on it and big tires. And being able to drive, like we thought the Ford Falcon with chicken feet in the back had pretty good traction. And then we got the Ford Fiesta with front-wheel drive, and we thought that had pretty good traction until we drove an actual four-wheel drive vehicle. It felt like you could go anywhere. And it revolutionized our family. So much we always like to have a four-wheel drive or an all-wheel drive vehicle available to us because there's no comparison to having an all-wheel drive vehicle, even if you have a front-wheel drive or a rear-wheel drive with weight in the back. The reason I mention this silly illustration is because John is going to talk about four-wheel drive faith today in our passage, which is 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 through 5, through 5 uh, verse 5 of chapter 5. So 1 John chapter 4. Uh, beginning in verse 20, and we're going to go into chapter 5, verse 5. John begins to describe two powerful components that are critical to a believer's assurance, and that when these two components of our faith are working together, it's like all-wheel drive Christianity. 
that if we just have one, it's like rear-wheel drive. If we just have the other, it's like front-wheel drive. And both will get us down the road. But when it snows and difficult times and challenging circumstances come into our life, it's like clicking it into four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive faith. If we get these two things working together and they're described in this passage, John is wrapping up his epistle and he starts our passage today. Um, he's been talking a lot about assurance and love and he starts out with really dropping a truth bomb on us that he feels that we're ready for, that we should be ready for this application point right here. And this is where our sermon this morning starts with this harsh reality found in 1 John chapter 4, verse, yet hates his brother. He's a liar. Uh, no, so John, so what do you really feel? Like, you know, just stop beating around the bush. Like, you know, just, just kind of lay it out. How do you really feel about someone who says they are a Christian but doesn't have love for a fellow Christian. Like, just, just don't spare my feelings. Don't worry about my emotions. Just, oh, I'm a liar. <laughs> like, he just, it's, a, it's this massive truth bomb that he's been preparing us for, and this is where our passage starts today. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. John makes the case that how can you love an invisible God that you can only see the results of his creation. You can only see what he's created. You can't see him himself. How can you say you love that entity that is invisible to you if you can't love the entities that he's created, that bear his image? That the one that you can see, isn't that a lot easier to love than the one that you can't? This is what he says. So if you don't love the one that you can see, how can you love the one that is responsible for him? And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. The last thing we want to hear, and it doesn't sound logical to us, is that love is commanded of us, that we have to love our Christian brother. And so there's really some powerful stuff going on here. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. We don't want to hear that. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. How about you just command us to do anything else? How about you command us to come early to church? How about you command us to tithe 11% instead of 10? How about you command us to read our Bible regularly? How about you command us to light candles? How about you command us to wear a suit to church? Like, can't you command us anything other than we have to love our brother? Because I think this is the problem I have when I read this verse, that depending on the day and how I feel and what's going on and how stressed out I am and how busy I am, I confuse loving people with liking them because I don't always like everybody. Even people who are really awesome people who love the Lord and serve Him faithfully, just being real, sometimes Sometimes it's in the heat of the moment. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just because I need a nap. Sometimes who just, but I confuse that. I confuse how I feel towards somebody with this command to love them. And so I just want to take a second. Maybe it's for my own benefit. Maybe, maybe it's for more than just myself. But can we define what it means to hate a Christian real quick? He says, don't do it. And so if we're not going to do it, we ought to know what it means and I guess what I'm making the case for is that it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with our feelings or our emotions. It has more to do with how we actually behave towards each other. And I'm not saying this is the perfect definition of how to hate a Christian 
or, or how to not hate a fellow believer, but I think it gets us down the right path, and I think that'll become clear as we go through the passage because John restates some more powerful things. So kind of my working definition of how to hate a Christian or what does John possibly mean by not hating a fellow believer is that I guess, like it's one thing to feel like I don't like somebody very much and so I don't want to hang out with them, I don't want to talk to them, I don't want to whatever. But to cross the line from not liking someone to hating them would mean that the, the Lord has given me a spiritual gift or an aptitude to serve his church, possibly to serve somebody specifically, and I withhold that. That I decide that I'm not going to serve that person with the gift that God gave me to give to them. Because that's how the church actually works. That the Lord blesses us through each other. That not all of us have the gift of teaching, not all of us have the gift of administration, not all of us have the gift of helps, not all of us have the gift of music, not all of us have the gift to work with children. I did a great job with my foster child today. What was that about? <laughs> I didn't have the gift of being a great foster dad this morning, apparently. I don't know. That's what it was. He feels very secure in my love, so he distances himself <laughs> from me, <laughs> which explains the front row. You guys feel so secure in my love. That must be it. Perfect. That's what it is. Uh, so we all have different gifts, and it's when we withhold those gifts that the Lord, because we never get a superpower for ourselves. We, that's not why God gives us spiritual gifts. He doesn't give us spiritual gifts for our own benefit until we begin to serve the church with them. And then we receive tremendous blessings being used of God in that way. And so I think if we're going to hate a Christian really good, it means we're probably withholding from them something that the Father has for them through our spiritual gifts. That we have an aptitude, we have an ability, we have a heart for something, we know it's something that the Lord has gifted us with, and we withhold it from them. I, I, I think that if we understand, as John goes on to say, what God is and how loving he is and his heart towards his church, that if we were to withhold that heart by withholding our spiritual gifts and aptitude, that that could possibly be construed as hateful. And so let's continue on through the text, because what John is saying here in John chapter, we experience God's love, it transforms us so that we don't withhold spiritual gifts and our ministry of spiritual gifts with the believers. It transforms us, it gives us a desire or an inclination, he at least equips us to serve the church, and that it comes down to our natural abilities having supernatural results. It's not that I can't talk, it's just that when I preach, the Lord partners with my words and people are able to make decisions of faith. It's, it's not that you aren't an excellent teacher in and of yourself, it's just that when you work with kids in, in a hallway separated by cloth banners, you see this children making decisions of faith. That's beyond good teaching, that's supernatural. When you help somebody, they don't feel micromanaged. It's not that you aren't a helpful person, but God has given you a supernatural ability to be helpful in a way that's actually helpful. And on and on and on, if you think about the spiritual gifts and how the Lord has blessed the church with them. And so we see natural abilities, but they come with supernatural results. This is what it would mean, I, I think, I'm proposing 
The one who loves God must also love his brother. Heavenly Father, you gave me this ability. You gave me this aptitude. Results. I'm planting a natural seed, but there's a supernatural crop. Because I love you, I want to do more of, of that. The one who loves God must also love his brother. Continuing in the text, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. So John is continuing to make the case that if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you love Jesus, and you love God's provision of Jesus, and your life has been indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit, and you have now these natural abilities that have supernatural faith-bearing results, that it's pretty easy to make the logical jump that you're going to love the other people to whom that has happened as well. I guess another way of saying it is that we love what our love loves. You love what your love loves. We have this little guy. He loves Tonka trucks almost more than anything. Guess who has a renewed appreciation for Tonka trucks? We love them. We think Tonka trucks are great. We didn't feel that way before Thanksgiving. We didn't care about Tonka trucks. We kept them in the basement. But when our little guy came along and he has a passion for, we love what our love loves. And he loves Tonka trucks. Um, I have the ability, which is so awesome, to pull up on my phone or my conviction project going on right now. So for an hour yesterday, I was able, through the power of magic, beam that to my TV and there it is, 40 inches of excavating glory with triaxles coming and going. Guess who planted himself? Because he's blind in, in one eye and he's doing patch therapy over his good eye. So he's literally, he's eight inches from the TV watching an excavator. We, we love that stuff now. We, that's not how we normally spend a Saturday morning. Trish and I cuddle in front of the TV watching excavators. That's not normal for us, but we love what our love loves. That's what this verse says, that as Christians, we love what our love loves. For some of us, we have developed an appreciation for certain kinds of TV shows, Gilmore Girls, that we normally wouldn't be caught dead watching. What's the other one that you like that you... I, I still am not caught dead watching that, you know. Or what's the other one that you like now that I won't... Die, I can't do it. Um, you haven't watched it since Thanksgiving. So if I was a better person, if I was a better person, I would be watching a million things. I just, I just, a million little things. I've got a million things I'd rather be doing than watching a million little things. <laughs> but we love what our love loves. Trish bears with me when I talk about chainsaws and how the way a man should smell is like two-stroke motor oil and red oak. Like, she bears with those conversations. That's what men actually smell like. You love what your love loves. And so it might be a certain TV show, or it might be a certain conversation that you bear with. Uh, but we love what our love loves. And that is what John is saying is true of the church. That everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. That that's, you, you, we love what the Father loves. Continuing in verse 2, this is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. This is where we come back to our front-wheel drive and rear-wheel drive analogy because for the first time, the two ideas are in the same verse, and he's going to get even more explicit. And I'm comparing rear-wheel drive and front-wheel drive 
to love for God and his people and obeying his commands. Because we don't always think of them together, and John's making the case that that's four-wheel drive Christianity. Love for God and his people followed by obedience to his commands. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is. This is crazy. For this is like we would probably never say that. We would write something more emotional there. We would write something like kinder there. But John says that love for God is keeping his commands. And so we can't say we love our brothers or love our sisters, that we love the church and then not obey God's commands. And we can't obey God's commands without loving the church and sharing our spiritual gifts and aptitudes and abilities. It's four-wheel drive Christianity. Rear-wheel drive will get you there. You know, love for the church. You just love the church. You love the times that the church is together. But when it comes to obeying God's commands, you're like, yeah, not so much. That's too legalistic for me. Or maybe you're more of the person, I like the black and white. I like doing the things. I like obeying God, but there's certain people in the church. I'm just like, whatever. I'm just going to focus on doing the things and let my emotions and feelings and love for people take a back seat. That's front-wheel drive or rear-wheel drive. But the two of them together is all-wheel drive Christianity. It's four-wheel drive Christianity. John is saying this is the heart and soul of assurance when we love what God loves and we obey his commands. For Now, his commands are not a burden because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. I, I guess I'd like to say that when we talk about in verses uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 5, Let's just talk a little about God's commands because, again, I know I get what I think of them is not necessarily what Scripture says because loving somebody isn't necessarily, like let's say you're loving them with everything that God has for them. You're using your spiritual gifts and aptitudes to pray for them. Maybe you have the gift of encouragement or maybe you have the gift of helps or you're doing your best in River Kids. You have the gift of teaching um, and, and, and you're just really, yes, you know, but the measure of love is not making people happy. Like that doesn't appear anywhere in this text. That you know you loved somebody the way God wants them to be loved because they're smiling about it. Like it never says anything about our emotions or our feelings. Love is not measured, not in this text, by making people happy. Now we know that God is merciful. We know that God is kind. We know that there is a kind and gracious way to be a blessing to a local church, and there's kind of an obnoxious, proud way to be a blessing, sort of, to a local church. So we get that. But what I appreciate about this passage is that love is not measured by making people happy because God does a really good job of loving his people but not always keeping us happy. God does a really good job of providing for his people, of saving his people, forgiving his people, indwelling them with the Holy Spirit. It's like it's not that it isn't important to him, but that's not his primary objective. I guess it's kind of like for those of you who are in the, the medical profession, like how the patient feels is important, but stopping the bleeding is more important. Restoring the heartbeat is more important. Um, providing proper medical care is, is more important. And, and maybe that's a helpful analogy. A, a, a fireman. He might be the kind of guy or woman who will save your cat out of the tree, but not if your house is on fire. The cat's going to get roasty. 
right? Their primary objective is to stop the fire, not worry about fluffy. And that may hurt your heart, but the fireman's there to save the house. And I think maybe those are goofy analogies, but that's how God works with his people. He's go love us in a way that is loving, but it doesn't always make us happy. And, and when we think, and, and I guess for me, that kind of like, ah, okay, that helps. Because I don't mind thinking about how can I love somebody in the context of using my spiritual gifts. But it's really hard for me sometimes to think about loving someone in a way where they feel happy about it. Um, I know that sounds terrible. Like, aren't you a pastor? Isn't it your job to make people feel happy? Um, I don't think so, not from this text. (laughs) I think my job is to teach and to preach and help people understand that God loves us thoroughly, but it's not, he's not putting how we feel necessarily on the front burner. He's putting things like forgiveness of sin, indwelling the Holy Spirit, engagement in ministry, uh, that that is love. He does just Twinkies when we haven't had lunch yet. I guess maybe that's another way of saying it. Twinkies make us happy. They really do. Uh, but we don't get that first. He, he's going to give us the peas and the carrots and, and the ham first. That's actually loving. That's, God's love causes us to grow, and our feelings are a byproduct of it, but he's not going to put our feelings first. So love is not measured by making people happy and about God's commands, that God's commands are what's best for his kids. And so this is why he says we should be really excited about following the commands of God because when we follow the commands of God, we are doing what is best for his kids. His child, and they say this is what's normal for this child, even though it's not what we would consider normal for our children, we do what they say because it is their actual child. If they say, you know, they're going to go out on a nice date and you're going to have the child until 10 o'clock at night and they say the child gets a bath at 6.30 and then 7 o'clock bedtime, you don't, you don't start watching Dora the Explorer at 7.15. You don't do that. Not with their child. That's not the way. That's not what works for their kid. You have to trust the parent's judgment. And, and when we obey God's commands, we are trusting God's judgment that we are doing what is right for his kids. God's commands are what's best for his kids. This is the way the text says it. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Now his commands are not a burden because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. And then John wraps up this thought bubble by saying, this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? I think it's easy for us sometimes to forget because of sin that this planet and we as people were designed to serve God perfectly. That yes, sin has had terrible consequences in in, in our world. It is not the victor. It is not the final story. It is not the way things have to be. That according to this passage, his commands are not a burden Because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. It's his actual world. It runs the way he says it should run. And so when we are loving our brothers and sisters by using the gifts that God has given us and we are obeying his commands, guess what? Sin stops really becoming a big part of our lives. It's something that we begin to conquer. That when it snows, we're driving an all-wheel drive. That we're going to be just fine. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
I guess by way of conclusion, and, and Vince, I'm wrapping up our time together here this morning, I want to leave you with this idea that love for God, which is expressed through our love for each other by giving each other what God has given to us and sharing it through spiritual gifts and obeying God's commands is like four-wheel drive Christianity. That love for the church is great and obedience for God is great and so is rear-wheel drive and so is two-wheel drive, but we're not really gonna drive through the difficulties of life when things get sticky and wet and slippery unless we understand that God's love is paired with our obedience, that our love for each other is paired with our obedience to God as well and that we're going to prioritize meeting each other's needs bearing in mind that we're emotional people, that we're things go in our life, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that according to this passage, there's no power that can prevent a decision of faith. That obedience to God supersedes our emotions, but it does not bypass our mind. That we have the ability to make a decision of faith that will lead into a spiritual victory when we love each other out of our love for God by sharing what he has given us with each other by spiritual gifts and by being obedient, understanding that God's commands are what's best for his kids. And so this morning, maybe it feels like, um, you know, if your faith has no love and our love has no obedience, that your life has just been spinning. <laughs> We've just been spinning our wheels. It doesn't matter how much chicken feed you put in the trunk. It, the Ford Falcon is not going to make it up the hill. Uh, and it doesn't matter how much you rev the Ford Fiesta, it's going to spin out too. It's, it's the four-wheel drive Christianity is going to make it every day. So our faith must have love, and our love has to have obedience. And that is how we have victory over the world. And maybe you're living a life where you've never made a decision of faith, that you've been driven by your emotions, that you've never humbled yourself to what God has for you. You didn't realize that when you become a Christian, God empowers you to have a superpower and to serve the church. And, and you when it comes to matters of faith, it would sound like this prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to live a life that pleases you. I want to live a life that is filled with love. I want to live a life where I'm not afraid of what other people think all the time, but I know that I'm doing the right thing by them because I'm obeying you. Father, would you give me that kind of clarity? Would you give me that kind of power as I place my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? I have a renewed desire to express my love for him. I see how you love me through him. Father, would you bring me into your family and give me the gifts that come from being one of your children? That would be a powerful prayer this morning. Others of us, maybe this concept of we've been trying to be loving, we've been trying to be loving, we've been trying to be loving, but it's been emotionally driven and we haven't really been worried about being obedient. And this concept is kind of helpful. Or maybe we've been really concerned about getting all the things done for Jesus in the right way at the right time. And we've just been stressing ourselves out and we feel loveless. And we realize that the two need to work together this morning. A prayer like this might be helpful. Heavenly Father, help me express my faith in four-wheel drive. You've wired me to be a loving person, but I haven't been very obedient. Or you've wired me to be an obedient person, but I haven't been very loving. Father, would you help me to put those two together so that that would be a powerful and encouraging prayer as well. So as we wrap up our time together this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand and express your praise to the Lord one more time. And it's an opportunity to pray however the Spirit directs you. Would you join me as I ask his blessing on this last bit of our time together this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for these powerful concepts. Thank you that John just shares real truth with us, that he's more worried that we get truth expressed to us in love than he is about our feelings. Father, I pray this morning that any of our emotions that are wrapped up or any confusion that we have would would just evaporate in light of the clarity of your word. Father, I pray that our love for each other in this church would be real, that we would know how to share the truth with each other in a kind and a merciful and a graceful way. And Father, that we would also have the courage to be obedient. We ask these things in Jesus' name.